Gospel Luke. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Luke chapter 7. I thank God for bringing all kinds of people into our church family. Uh, While leaders try to keep an eye on attendance numbers because it affects some things like do we fit and stuff like that, we don't often, like that, that, that's important, but it's not of the utmost importance. So we don't typically share that with people. But maybe it would be helpful for you to know that there's a few years uh, where we kind of we had about 130 people gathering on Sunday morning. Then, uh, uh, like last year, there's more like 150 people every Sunday. This year, it's been more like 165 people. Last Sunday, we had exactly 200 people here. That was a lot of people. And so, thank you for like moving in and that kind of stuff. I think there's a few fewer here today, uh, but we added an extra row and moved some things together. And thanks for continuing to give generously that we can keep doing the work. Uh, many of you also have made commitments, and so we talked more about that last week, but as we look at adding on to the building to create more space. Thank you for making those commitments as well. Um, Mostly though, I'm just glad, like more people is great, but more people just means more and more people to point to Jesus. We want to know Christ and make Him known, and so we're grateful to be able to to do that together as a church. Um, Question for you, are you by nature more tending to be like more arrogant or more apprehensive? More arrogant or more apprehensive? Some of us by nature maybe tend towards arrogance. Sometimes it just looks like assertiveness, which can be a good thing. Like we know what we want, we know what we expect. Not afraid to maybe uh, take some steps to get that, but sometimes it slides over into arrogance where we start to think that we deserve things and we start to think that I can get it. I can get and I can do and I can have whatever I want uh, to do or to have. Others by nature are more apprehensive. That, that for you, you're kind of a more of a cautious type. Maybe more nervous or anxious. You might even doubt that you deserve anything good. And you tend to be maybe more passive and are more prone to shrinking back. Are you by nature more arrogant or apprehensive? In today's passage, we're going to see an unexpected man come to Jesus not with arrogance or apprehension, but to come to Jesus with a humble, confident faith. We know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is Israel's promised Messiah. But in Luke, we see Jesus, we're introduced to Jesus coming in humility. He's born to a teenage virgin. He is laid in a feeding trough as an infant. And then he is raised up in podunk Nazareth, from which nothing good comes, is what the locals say about it. But then, at about age 30, his public ministry begins. It begins with his baptism, where we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, followed by his temptation by the devil himself, and then Jesus begins teaching. He begins performing miracles. And his popularity has been rising Crowds are flocking to him. Some have become devoted disciples. He's appointed 12 Jewish men to be his apostles. Some of the Jews, more strict religious sect known as the Pharisees, have been opposing him. We just spent, though, four weeks listening in to what Jesus is saying to those who are following him as his disciples. In John, sorry, Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49. 
Last week we saw that sermon end with a call to build on a solid foundation by coming to Jesus, by hearing what He says, and by doing what He says. And we had a lot of kids here last week, and they drew pictures to go along with the sermon, and they turned them in. Most of them, I think, turned them in, and they're on the wall uh, in the back. So if you didn't get a chance to look at those, stop by the wall on the way back and have a review of what we looked at last week. But that takes us up to today's passage. In Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, where we will see an unexpected man. He is not a Jewish man. And he's going to come to Jesus with not apprehension or arrogance, but with humble and confident faith. And Jesus is going to do another miracle in the passage we look at today. But in this passage, I think you're going to notice that Luke's emphasis is not for us to look at the miracle, but really, I think he's holding this man up as a model of humble and confident faith. And so that's going to be the emphasis of the message as well. I think we're going to have our expectations adjusted about who Jesus saves. And we're going to see in this man a model with how we also should approach Jesus. So, if you're able, would you stand? I'll pray, we'll read the very Word of God, and then dig in a bit deeper. Father, quiet our minds, quiet our hearts. Some have come in very distracted, some have come in very down, some have come in just completely exhausted. What a privilege though it is, Father, to gather together with some people very different from one another, but many of us now made family by adoption, belonging to You through faith in Christ, Your Spirit dwelling in us, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit who inspired Luke to write every one of these words, the same Spirit who we now need to work in us to shine a light on our hearts, to shine a light on Jesus, that we might not only hear and understand Your Word, but believe it and obey it. So please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Let's hear God's Word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. 
Amen. You can be seated. If it's helpful for you to have notes inside your bulletin, you'll find a sermon notes page along with a life group guide as some of our life groups begin to meet. Just a reminder too, in your bulletin there, life groups uh, all listed on one side. We'd love you to get to know a few people a lot better and dig into the Word and work on applying it. So we have life groups meeting on all sorts of different nights. Find one, contact the person there. Also come to Sunday school on Sunday. But the other thing in your bulletin is a sermon notes page and life group guide. If you want to turn there, maybe that will be helpful. You'll see that today's message just has two points. Splitting up this passage, verses 1 to 5, and then 6 through 10. And in verses 1 to 5, we are introduced to a centurion's and his sick servant and some surprises. A centurion, a sick servant, and some surprises. After his sermon in chapter 6, which we just got done looking at last week, Jesus heads to Capernaum. This will in many ways become like home base for him in his public ministry years. And here we meet the main character, who is a centurion. Centurion, uh, you might kind of hear the word century in there, which means a hundred. So theoretically, a centurion was a, picture this, a Roman military or law enforcement officer who was in charge of a hundred troops. Now, in practice, most centurions had had uh, charge of somewhere between 60 and 80 troops, but they still call them centurions, okay? So, important guy, this is a high-paying job in the Roman military. So, so Israel, Palestine, in under the Roman Empire at this time, and the Roman Empire would have these military and law enforcement type officers stationed in different places. This one, and this is a very high paying job, compared to what a soldier would get, it's ridiculously high paying. A soldier was a pretty low paying job. If you're a centurion, you're getting paid pretty well. Now you would think that somebody, uh, an officer of that rank would be... Uh, really well respected, but you got to keep in mind that he's an officer in the occupying empire's army or military, right? And so most of the time, these Roman government employees were not very well respected by the people groups over which they governed. So surprisingly, maybe, oh, I should mention this, that the that, uh, that the, the people in the centurion rank were often of many different nationalities, okay? They weren't all like Roman, uh, but they were all working for the Roman Empire and of many different nationalities. We don't know the nationality of this man. We just know that he's not Jewish. And the biblical word for not Jewish is Gentile, okay? So he's a Gentile, uh, he's not of the people of Israel, and he's in the area of Capernaum overseeing uh, 60 to 80 troops as a military officer. So that's who we are. But, but here, here's the thing that's surprising. We're going to find a number of things surprising. What's One thing that's surprising is that we're going to find that this man is very well respected by the Jews. That might not have been extremely common. And we need to note, as we read this passage, nearly 2,000 years after it was written, and we live on the other side of the world, there's going to be some things in this passage that don't seem all that surprising to us, 
but they would have been very surprising to the people living in that day and the people reading what Luke wrote. So I want to notice those things. It might be surprising to a reader of Luke's gospel that this this man in an age where servants were not typically very highly valued or even always looked at as human, that this Roman centurion of all people highly valued a servant of his, was concerned for that servant's life. If something would have happened to that servant, certainly he could have just gotten another servant, but he was concerned enough about this life. Did you notice what it said there in verse 2? Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. He valued the life of one who was a servant of his. This would have been surprising probably to most people reading the Gospel of Luke. And he values him so highly that he's willing to basically call in a favor. This man has earned a good reputation among the Jewish people, and he has now heard of Jesus. Note that in verse 3. Verse 3 says, When the centurion heard about Jesus... He doesn't go to Jesus himself, but what does he do? He sends to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servants. The Jewish elders then are going to do, because they respect this man, they're willing to do what he asks. So he kind of calls in a favor of the Jewish elders, go to your rabbi who I've heard about, he can heal, I've heard, and I have a servant who I value who needs to be healed. Can you send for him and have him come and heal my servant? And so we get to verses 4 to 5 and we see some more surprises. They don't do this reluctantly. They do it very willingly. Note what it says. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. Note, this is Jewish people pleading earnestly on behalf of a Gentile that Jesus the rabbi would come and do something. They were trying to prove to Jesus that he's worthy. That's what it says next. They said to Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him. In many cases, there was racial prejudice between Jew and people who were not Jews or Gentiles, and they didn't believe that Gentiles were worthy of much. But here, they're arguing, even pleading earnestly before Jesus, that this Gentile man is worthy of Jesus doing something for him. They had great respect for the men, which would have been very surprising, I think, to the people around them. And here we learn a little bit more there in verse 5. It says, For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He loves our nation, they tell Jesus. He's not an Israelite, but he loves Israel. He's not converted to Judaism, but he seems to be more than just curious. He really loves these people. In fact, he's even financed the building of their synagogue. Now, you would expect that a Jewish place of gathering and worship would be built by Jewish people, right? Not Roman centurions of some other nationality. So this is surprising. Here in our own church, the building finance committee is asking who to provide funds for our church. Our church, right? They're not going to the, you know, regional bishop serving under the Roman Catholic Pope and asking him for money to build onto our church building, right? So this is surprising 
what is being done here. The, the Roman centurion is the one who has funded the building of the synagogue. And so they're trying to prove to Jesus, this man is worthy to have you do what he wants you to do. Come and heal his sick servant. So in verses 1 to 5, we're introduced to this uncommonly kind, generous, God-fearing, Jew-loving officer in the Roman military who would just like Jesus to heal his sick servant. Okay? So that's the introduction there in verses 1 to 5. Then we get to verses 6 through 10. And I think that the best part of this passage is not verse 10 where the servant gets healed. I think the best part of this passage is the beginning of verse 6. Let's look at it. The beginning of verse 6 simply says this, And Jesus went with them. Jesus went with them. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Many of his fellow Jews needed his help. But here we see Jesus going to this unlikely, unexpected one, a Gentile Roman military officer, a centurion. And that's the Jesus we worship. The one who goes to the unlikely, expected ones. But then, this centurion, I've told you that he's not arrogant or apprehensive. He seems to be humble. Notice this as we continue on in verse 6. Knowing this, again, they would have understood this context. We maybe don't. But not only would Jews not normally enter a Gentile's home, it seems that this Roman military officer just flat out knows that Jesus ranks far above him. This guy is used to ranking above other people. He's got 60 to 80 people plus servants who will do whatever he wants them to do. But this man seems to know that Jesus ranks above him. So look at how he responds there at the rest of verse 6. It says, when he was not far from the house, so Jesus is on his way, he's not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord. So he's referring to someone else as Lord, acknowledging that this one ranks highly. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Note the humility here. He calls Jesus Lord, and then he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You know how when people are coming to your house, you've got to like clean like crazy before they come? Right? That, that maybe, maybe it's like really quick kind of cleaning, or maybe it's like, a, all right, let's go at this and let's do it a little bit more. We decided after the worship service last Sunday to have Bo over to our house. Uh, and so he's like, yeah, I'll be there in a few minutes. So we did the really fast kind of cleaning where you throw stuff uh, in all kinds of places. Sometimes you do a longer kind of cleaning, right? Because, well, we've got special guests coming to our house, uh, so we want to make this look presentable. Nothing against you, Bo, but it was just Bo. So we didn't do a great job uh, last week. But you can imagine as this man sends for Jesus, this growing in popularity rabbi who can perform miracles, right, is now on his way to his house and he's got second thoughts. Listen, I'm not worthy to have you come into my house. And so he sends some others to tell him, listen, you don't need to come. So we see humility in this man. 
Listen, I'm not worthy to have you come. And I don't think it's because his house wasn't clean. I think it's because he's got a pretty good sense of who Jesus is and who he is. And then, we don't only see humility. By the way, we've seen this before. Remember in in Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist says of Jesus, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to stoop and untie his sandals. Right? And remember in Luke chapter 5, when Peter is called to follow Jesus, and Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When, When we come face to face with who Jesus really is, and we see ourselves for who we really are, we have a reaction, a humble reaction, something like that of this centurion here, who says, listen, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. But it's not only a humble reaction, we also see a confident faith. Let's continue on. Notice the confident faith here. He says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, verse 7 now, I did not presume to come to you, but listen to this confident faith. But say the word and let my servant be healed. He understands that Jesus has such great authority that Jesus doesn't even need to come to the house. He doesn't need to say certain words. He doesn't need to touch the guy. Listen, you can, Jesus, from where you are at, say the word, and without touching him, without speaking to him, you can heal my servant. You have that kind of authority. He recognizes the authority of Jesus, and you know that because of what he says in the next verse. He's kind of using himself as an example He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. He knows what it's like to be in authority. And so he says, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Right? So he he knows what it's like to have authority, and whenever he says to do something, the people under him do it. And so he's using himself as an example to say, Jesus, I know that you're like that. You can say something, and it will be done. You can heal my sick servant without even showing up at my house. From where you are, you can say the word, and my servant is healed. We see a man with great humility, but also with confident faith. And the reason I think I'm I'm emphasizing this is because I think that's what Luke is emphasizing. Because that's what Jesus emphasized. Notice verse 9. Verse 9 says this, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled at him. Remember, so far we've seen a lot of marveling in Luke, but usually it's the people marveling at Jesus. Now it's Jesus marveling at him. I like this. And here's what Jesus does then. It says, when, when, they, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and, listen, turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The point of this passage is not so much the healing, because that's almost an afterthought. There it is in verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus never even went to the house. He could heal him from right where he's at, and he did it. 
But that almost seems like an afterthought. The point that Jesus is trying to make here is not about his power to heal. He's made that point many times already. The point that Jesus is trying to make here is he's trying to have this man stand before the people as an example. That's why he turns to the crowds and says to them, after marveling at this man, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He wants his fellow Jews to hear about the faith of this Gentile man. Again, this is unexpected. You would expect to find this kind of faith amongst Jewish people. And we have seen faith exhibited, haven't we, so far? It's not that none of the people of Israel have exhibited faith in Luke. Not at all, right? Jesus is just saying this guy is at another level. Because we've seen people exhibit faith in Luke. Think of the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus. That's a step of faith, is it not? Think of the men who lowered their friend through the roof to get to Jesus, trusting that Jesus could heal him. That's faith. The people of Israel have exhibited faith here in Luke, but Jesus is holding up this Gentile man and saying, not even in Israel have I seen this kind of faith. Jesus sees this man's humble, confident faith, and he marvels at it. He celebrates it. Now, I wonder if the Jews who were hearing this right behind Jesus and watching this happen, I wonder if they were offended when he said, not even in Israel have I seen this kind of faith. I wonder if they were a bit ashamed. He's right. I wonder if the Jews reading Luke's gospel were convicted. I wonder if the Gentiles reading Luke's gospel were encouraged. Jesus addresses the crowd because he's holding this man up as an example. That really seems to be the emphasis of this account. So that's going to be the emphasis in our application as well. So, we'll end this way. Four points of application. How does this apply to us? Number one, I think we need to adjust our expectations of who Jesus saves and talk to all kinds of people about Jesus. We need to adjust our expectations of who Jesus saves and talk to all kinds of people about Jesus. This will become a theme in the book of Luke and Acts, the sequel to Luke. Just as it has been a theme throughout the Bible and throughout history, remember we said at the beginning, Luke is the true story of what Jesus has done to save all kinds of people. Luke really emphasizes that. There's a lot of attention given in Luke to outsiders, to those that you would not expect. And in this case, it is a Gentile Roman military officer. And Jesus, we need to know this, is still saving all kinds of people. You might recall that just at the end of August, we baptized three people up here. God had, in the past, saved all of them. Three people from three very different backgrounds that really didn't have a lot in common, except they heard and believed the gospel and were saved. They all also happen to all have in common that they usually sit in this section of the church. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but maybe there's somebody over here that needs to be baptized and hasn't yet. Um, that's what people in this corner do. Um, but you, you kind of get that? All kinds of people. God is still saving all kinds of people through faith in Jesus. I didn't comment much on at the beginning uh, on verse 3, but go back to verse 3 and look at that because I think it's significant. Before this man could come to Jesus with humble, confident faith, what did he need? Look at verse 3. 
What did he need? He needed to hear about Jesus. It says, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders. He never would have sought Jesus out if he hadn't first heard about Jesus. And we don't want to overlook that. Church, we need to talk about Jesus because people will not come to know Jesus if we're not talking about Jesus. People will not come to know Jesus if you're just a really, really nice person who does really, really nice things. The gospel needs to be proclaimed in words. Romans 10.14 makes that pretty clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they going to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they going to believe in the one of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone's preaching? Romans 10.14 is helpful. Keep loving, church, and talking to all kinds of people about Jesus. And let me just say this. Even those that you expect are not going to respond favorably. God might just surprise you. That lady at work that you think, she's just not going to have anything to do with Jesus. Maybe her. Students, that kid at school that you think, like, I don't think he's ever going to talk to him about Jesus. Right? That person in your family, and you've tried to keep talking to him about Jesus. Jesus is still saving all kinds of people, even unexpected, unlikely ones. Application point number two. Come to Jesus humbly. Come to Jesus humbly. Again, some of us tend naturally toward arrogance. We think we can do it. We think we're smart enough. We think we're good enough. We're dedicated enough. We think we deserve things. But like this centurion, may it be more and more clear to us every day that Jesus ranks above us. However much intelligence, however much authority, however much money, whatever it is that God has given you, may you recognize, may we recognize day after day that Jesus ranks above me and to come to Him with humility. Like this centurion, may we realize that we're sinners who have no right to be in God's presence. May we look to Jesus who came humbly and who died humbly. Remember what it says in Philippians chapter 2. It says this, that who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus humbled himself in his incarnation, and Jesus humbled himself in his crucifixion, and we ought to humble ourselves before Him. As Carl F.H. Henry once said, can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? Let's come to Jesus humbly. And then number three, let's come to Jesus with confident faith. We come to Him humbly, but we come to Him with confident faith. Some of you tend naturally toward apprehension, thinking no one hears you, no one sees you, no one cares, and so you may prefer passivity. You don't often ask for what you need. But I love that this centurion is not just humble, but he also knows what he needs and he asks for it. We see in him an example of confident faith. Like a child being dropped off at the nursery, apprehensive to let go of mom until the nursery volunteer holds out a toy that makes the apprehensive toddler's eyes get a little bit big as the toddler decides, I need that toy, and therefore I'm willing 
to walk away from mom to get that. Like a woman beat up from life and filled with doubts and fears and anxieties, apprehensive about reaching out for help, but getting to a point that she knows, I need it, so she just shows up at church anyway. May we be people who come to Jesus with confident faith. Ephesians 3 says this, This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, listen, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. If it's just us, we don't have boldness. You're not naturally maybe very, very bold or confident. But in Christ, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Or Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's come to Jesus, yes, humbly, but also with a confident faith, knowing that He is our reward. We're we're willing to leave behind whatever we leave behind, whatever makes us feel secure because we know He is a better reward. He alone can save. He alone is what we truly need. He alone can satisfy. So we leave what makes us feel secure and we come to Jesus with confident faith knowing He will provide. And then finally, number four. Though we are unworthy, we ought to marvel, to marvel that Jesus comes to dwell in us. When we see who Jesus really is, He is the eternal Son of God. He is fully God. He is fully man. And we see ourselves for who we really are. And we know He knows us for who we really are. Like the centurion, we would be right to feel unworthy to have Jesus come into our house. We know we are unworthy, but remember in verse 6, That good news that Jesus starts coming to him. I love when we sing that song, Jesus said that if I'm lost, he will come to me. Ephesians 3.17 speaks of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Revelation 3.20, Jesus is speaking to the church. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And our hope for the future is in that same book, Revelation 21, verse 2. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is good news. We are unworthy. And so we marvel at the fact that God has sent His Son to save us, to dwell in us. And this is something that causes us to marvel that a holy God would do this for sinners like us. Let's pray. God, You are a holy God, and there really is none like You. And so we dare not come to you in arrogance. Protect us from that, God. We know that you are a gracious God and there is none more loving than you. And we dare not reject your gracious offer to come and to dwell in us by your Spirit. 
Help us to come to you not with arrogance or apprehension, but with humble, confident faith. We really are eternally grateful for your saving work. And I pray that you would cause us to marvel at you. As we sing words like these here in a moment, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. God, help us to come and behold you. This is what we need. You are the one and the only. And we come to you only in the name of your son. Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.